Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Well, what can one say about Jim Boyd? A whole lot. He is, in my estimation, a true Renaissance man. Longtime news anchor at the prestigious WCVB Channel 5 in Boston, Jim has been a steady, dependable journalist, earning an audience's trust and admiration for decades of service. Jim's also a lifelong student, having gone back to school following his retirement from Channel 5 in 2009. He eventually got a degree in social work. And as you'll hear, he literally worked his way up from the mailroom to become a Hall of Fame broadcaster. He's also an actor, a video producer, a writer, and someone who continues to give back to many causes in the community. How's life, first of all? How are you doing? Only fabulous. That's Only what I like fabulous. to hear. Having a great time. I had a very busy fall and, and early winter. Retired from television back in 2008. Spent about four years in school. I know. I want to talk to you about that, too. <laughs> Trying to get that education that I abandoned way back when, when I was young and foolish. And then just as I was about to graduate in 2013, I started getting notices from SAG. Screen Actors Guild. Screen Actors Guild, saying that they needed extras or people to perform as background actors in movies. I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the nice thing about it is that it was no heavy lifting. Mm. You know, you just kind of show up and if you needed, you go on set. I've just had a blast. You are doing what people in retirement are supposed to do. You're enjoying life. You're learning. You're creative. You're busy. You have a great family. I think you figured it out. I hope I figured it out. <laughs> Let me take you back. We'll go in some kind of chronological order here. Let me take you back a little ways to your start in the business. And in the old legends of Hollywood, you know, the woman is discovered at the drugstore counter. Not you, Lana Turner. In your case, mailroom. Mailroom. Absolutely. But where? Tell us where Mailroom at uh, an organization called National Educational Television and Radio Center. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long before they dropped the radio center part um, and just became National Educational Television. It was the uh, forerunner, if you will, to PBS, as we now know it. It was television network interconnected through basically the mails. Yeah, basically had gone to college for three years, and it was a disaster. I got a little letter from what I call the can't people. said, with grades like yours, you can't come back here. Oh, the can't people. <laughs> you know, go, go somewhere else and find something better to do with your life. And at that point, you know, a youngster growing up in Harlem in New York, you know, whose parents sacrificed and saved and did everything they could to make sure the kids had an education, and I just blew it. <laughs> just just blew it. So yeah. the one thing that I knew that I was not going to do is embarrass my parents any further and become a negative statistic in New York, as unfortunately so many people, mm. so many of the people that I grew up with did. So, so I sought out to get a job. And I thought, well, I've gone to college for three years. That's got to mean something. And it meant very little to anyone. <laughs> the thought process was, well, we've got to hire this guy. He's got three years of college so far. You know, as soon as he gets his foot, feet on the ground, he's going to leave us. So we're not going to invest anything in him. Or this guy went to, to college for three years and accomplished basically nothing. He got thrown out because of poor grades. So what good is he going to be to us? So the only job that I could find was one in the mailroom. Shortly, I realized that, well, it's a start. And what's this organization all about? I knew nothing about Television, radio, broadcast. So there was nothing in your high school or early college career that said, I want to be a journalist or any of this stuff? Well, I, I couldn't decide what my major was going to be. Yeah. 
So at one point it was biology, then it was English, and then it was history, and then it was, get out of here. <laughs> then it was get out of here. Yeah, get out of here, you know. <laughs> so as most kids do when they're 17, 18 years old, they have no idea what yeah. they want to be. Yeah. It's a rare individual who that young says, well, this is the career path that I want to follow and mm. is able to do it. And then 30, 40 years later, you find that person still in that same career path. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Mm. I want to go back a ways to your lineage. And you mentioned your parents. I did a little research on you. And there's a musical background here that's kind of interesting that I'd love to explore. Your father, first of all, was he a gospel guy? Gospel um, singer? Yes. My father was, uh, well, he sang in a church choir for mm -hmm. basically his entire career. Um, he also was a founder singer in a quartet called the Aeolians, I believe is the way it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. um, not found many references to what that really means or where they got the title. Um, and I can remember being a kid and my dad would have rehearsals in the house and three other guys would come in and the quartet would start singing. And so, oh my God, my ears hurt. <laughs> uh, what's interesting, though, is my dad passed away in 96. Mm -hmm. Mom passed away in 98. And my sister and I had an enviable task of cleaning up the house. And what I did find were some 38 RPM records my mm. dad pressed with his group. You said 38? 38. 38 RPM. Okay. Not? Not uh, 78. No. Not 33, no. but 38. Uh, okay. Well, maybe it was 33. Oh, whatever. If that's what it was. <laughs> I never heard of a 38 okay. RPM, but a 33, whatever. So you found these records. I found these records and, and listened to them, and uh, it refreshed my memory that, you know, they sang. And yeah. I don't think that they ever did anything with those records. You know, they certainly were never picked up by anybody and, and circulated. How about your grandmother, though? Uh, it was my grandfather. Oh, I'm sorry, grandfather. Violin, my, right? My grandfather was a violinist uh, with a group called the Negro String Quartet. Mm. Played at Carnegie Hall, 19... 25. That's impressive. That's pretty cool. And my dad had a photograph of his dad in the quartet. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, one of the gems I was able to, oh, to yeah. rescue from, from his apartment. But I never knew much about it. So at one point, a brother-in-law said, you know, let's see if we can find out who your grandfather is, or who your grandfather was, and what that photo was all about. It was determined that they had played at Carnegie Hall mm -hmm. in 25, and I contacted the archivist at Carnegie Hall in New York, and lo and behold, he sent me the program for that night. Not only the program that had my grandfather's name listed, Arthur Boyd, he sang, uh, he played uh, backing up a singer, Roland Hayes, and not only did they get the program, the complete mm -hmm. listing of it, but the New York Times Review. Oh, that must have been that appeared in 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 the newspaper special. the next day. That's it. So. That's impressive. Well, there's a performance background uh, again through the gene pool. We'll get to that in a minute. So, as a television anchor, you had decades at one place, which is so unusual. Very uh, unusual. That, but one place being uh, WCVB Channel Five here in uh, Boston, actually in Needham. We may not see that again ever in our current culture, in terms of local television mm -hmm. being that important? Well, it, it seems as what's happening now is that there are so many different outlets mm. where people can get their news. 
I mean, you can even customize your news so that it, it appears in your phone and you get alerts and, you know, you can decide that these are the things that I want to know more about. And there's so much competition that I tend to think that the piece of the pie that local television news commands these days is a much smaller piece of the pie. Mm. Well, you probably recall when I started back at WCVB, there were three major television stations in town on one band, I guess it was the VHF band, mm -hmm. and it was a UHF band. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of TV stations. If I'm not mistaken, the UHF stations didn't have any no, news outlets. No, no. So there was WCVB, Channel 5, WBZ, Channel 4, and through uh, various outlets. NAC at the time, <laughs> and, I believe. NAC, and yeah. you know, now back to WHDH, which the call letters had had. Way back when. Now, were but, you hired as a reporter, right? You weren't immediately hired as an anchor, or were you? That is the case. Okay. I was I was hired actually as a reporter contact. Which means what? Well, I think it translates these days to a producer. Okay. So a news uh, remote producer, as opposed to someone mm -hmm. who is what we call a line producer who sits and produces a newscast okay. in the studio. Mm -hmm. And you have producers that go out with reporters and help to arrange stories and that sort of thing. Okay. Was there experience in life that really got you ready to do this? Because standing up in front of a camera ultimately, which is what you did, I mean, for a lot of people, that's kind of nerve wracking and kind of earth shatteringly different than anything else they've ever done. Did you feel comfortable right away? Or Well, you know, I'm, I'm a normal person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was certainly a normal person back then. I was scared to death. I mean, absolutely scared to death. It, in my days at uh, National Educational Television, I was a producer, and I did a lot of the work um, that a reporter contact would do, and there were times when I would appear maybe in voice only mm. in pieces that I did mm -hmm. for, for NET. I recall doing a show in Chicago, <laughs> and this will take you back a ways. The, the program I was working on was called News and Perspective, and I guess the closest thing to it that exists today is your Sunday morning talk shows. Okay. Where you get a, assemble a group of experts, and they sit around, and they talk about whatever you know, topics of the day or week were. And we did a program. Uh, the show, by the way, was moderated by, I guess you called this person the host. He was called the moderator. It was Clifton Daniel. Mm -hmm. And Clifton Daniel uh, was an editor of the New York Times. He also happened to have the distinction of being married to Margaret Truman. So he was Harry Truman's son-in-law. Okay. Uh, and there are all the stories about him that are just phenomenal for me. Um, but we did a program called Nixon and the Blacks. And I was sort of a street reporter in Chicago asking people, Give me your impressions of President Nixon. Give me your impressions of President Nixon as he relates to the black community here in Chicago. And that was one of the opportunities that I had mm. to do, you know, some, if you will, on-camera work. I was working with a, a with a film crew in Chicago. I did the same thing in, in Detroit, working for News and Perspective. And if I'm not mistaken, in Atlanta, when we were there doing a show, but I had a limited, a very limited amount of experience yeah. at doing anything on air. 
But then you became the go-to anchor for decades, which is a real testament. Oh, how to nice you. of you to say, Mister Dependable. You could always depend on on Jim Boyd, whether it was mornings or noontime or weekends. Whenever you were on, you know you were steady as a rock. And people don't maybe understand what an anchor really does. I mean, there's all kinds of spoofs on anchor men, but but there is more to, than just showing up and looking as handsome and devilishly handsome as you. So I always uh, schmooze my guests like that. Tell us. <laughs> A little bit about and on radio when nobody can, exactly. can verify. What well, they can see your picture it. online. That's the difference today. What What was a day of work like for an anchor then, at least when you did it? For sixteen years, I was the anchor of what we call the eye opener at News Center Five. The show, if I'm not mistaken, today starts at four thirty a.m. Mm. and goes until seven. I guess it, I was fortunate that when I started, it was only a 90-minute show that went on from 5.30 to 7 o'clock. It expanded and became a two-hour show from 5 until 7. I would go to bed if I could by 8.30, 9 o'clock, <laughs> get up somewhere between 2.30 and 3, head off to the station. Fortunately, I lived in Needham and... WCVB is located in Needham, so I had about a three-and-a-half-mile commute mm. that would, on most mornings, take me about three-and-a-half minutes, <laughs> although you're not going to find many local roads where you could do a mile a minute. The responsibilities that I had uh, for the eye-opener were certainly to be as prepared as possible with the material that we were going to do. I did very little writing of my material for the eye-opener. But I had to come in and review it and you know, get up to date on all of the stories that had mm. developed overnight and then sit in the studio and try and present it. You know, I, I kind of felt that it was a unique opportunity to be one of the first people to find out things that were happening that were important to people in our you know, viewing audience. So for me, it was, well, wait a minute, nobody knows about this. Mm except, you know, writers that were involved right. in, in the right. story, perhaps somewhere else. Um, and we had an excellent crew of reporters and writers and interns working on the eye-opener that were working the phones and calling, you know, around to police jurisdictions to see if there is anything that we needed to report, you know, going through newspapers and you know, you remember the old days when they used to have wire services and the old rip and read right. uh, where, where people were scanning the wires. Um, and generally what would happen is we would have in front of us when we walked in, um, I always had a co-anchor. Um, I believe Ann McGrath may have been my first co-anchor on the eye opener and then Susan Burke and Susan Warnick for a while, Liz Bruner. But we would be handed at least the first half hour of our newscast for us to survey, <laughs> go through and make sure that to the best of our knowledge, it was all accurate information. Mm. Um, sometimes we'd have people who were new to the Boston area who came in to work as producers and, and writers. And so we did our own fact checking as, as best we could. And then you'd go on the air, and you're on the air for 
two solid hours. Right. For the and most part. in that two hours, things can happen. Things do happen, obviously. And that's where the anchor has to be the quarterback with a lot of help from outside. But still, you're there. It makes sense. You covered some rather dramatic local and national stories because you were there all the time. Do certain stories stay with you on a local level? One of the things that I've had the most difficulty with is being able to say, okay, these are things that happen on my watch, if you will. Mm -hmm. And this one stood out and that one's very, very few of those stories. I mean, if if we sit and we we start talking about like things like the Challenger explosion, Mm. it happened, I think, Mm mid-morning. You know, so the eye opener certainly was already over, but we were standing around getting ready for the midday and it was going to be a key story for us. Kristen McAuliffe, the teacher from New Hampshire, was on board, and we were watching. And when it went up, you you knew, you know, just seconds into that launch, that something was amiss. Um, We had a reporter that was in Florida to cover it. One of the things that I recall was We Are the World, when entertainers from around the world got together um, for Big fundraiser. Yeah, it was about the mid-80s, I think, yeah, something in, like in that. In the mid-80s, and was it an AIDS fundraiser? It might have been AIDS or hunger relief. No. I think it was AIDS, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> AIDS or hunger. Um, it, I, I, I can't remember specifically why they did it, but it was just such a spectacle mm. that we all stood around in the newsroom as, as the stories continued to develop and who was going to be involved, and we were watching you know, the singers doing rehearsals, and then we were watching... Um, as this thing sort of circulated around the globe and Australia had um, a performance and there were performances in the United Kingdom and and at the U.S., in the U.S. There was a a funeral for Joe Moakley. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, congressman from here. And and one of the things that I recall is that former President Bill Clinton was in Boston to pay his respects. Say what you want to say about Bill Clinton, but he had a presence that if you were in the room with him or in his presence, because I wasn't in the room with him, I had an opportunity to do an interview with him. It was mesmerizing Mm. in a lot of ways. Heard that, yeah. Circumstances were that he came to pay his respects. Um, Mokley was lying in state at the state house, and there's an alcove in the state house that Generally, the governors and probably still do would drive in, you know, so it was protected. You know, it's almost like driving into a tunnel, get out of the car and going. So, mm. so Bill Clinton arrived. He had rock star status. Mm. When it was clear that he was in the vicinity, people started applauding. People went over to him and were getting autographs and shaking his hand. And then the reporters that were assembled, you know, my particular assignment that day was, okay, we want you to go to the state house and cover whatever happens. You know, we had people inside for the official ceremony and they had, you know, certain responsibilities. My responsibility was to just, you know, be there, just (laughs) kind of check out what's going on. And you think anything, you know, we were doing live coverage um, and if there's anything of an import so Bill, Bill Clinton shows up, and I said, hey, folks, Bill Clinton's here. I'm going to see if I can get an interview with him. And it was in the day when we had wireless microphone, wireless microphone technology. So 
spot. The photographer I was with said, well, you know, you just could be standing here. And the wireless, you know, big buildings, we're in downtown Boston, wireless can, mm. can wreak havoc on us. So we're going to have give you a wired mic. And the wired mic that I had had maybe 10 feet, possibly 20 feet mm-hmm. cable. Mm. So... I was tethered to the camera. The camera was set up on a tripod. It wasn't moving. It wasn't handheld. And so when when uh, Bill Clinton started interviews with other reporters, I was like too far away. I couldn't get to him. And the reporter said, I mean, the photographer said, well, I'm going to help you. I'll go back to the truck and I'll get a longer cable for you. So I'm standing there. Saying, oh, my goodness. You know, this opportunity is just going to go right by me. i could do nothing other than, you know, be a presence, listen to the interviews that he was doing mm-hmm. with other reporters mm-hmm. in the hope that, you know, he would recognize that that there was another individual <laughs> that wanted to talk to you. So the photographer came back with, um, with adequate cabling. And I had listened to Bill Clinton be interviewed by other reporters. And, you know, there was, didn't seem to be, you know, any time restrictions from him or from the other reporter. So what I thought was really interesting was he did what we call one-on-ones with all the reporters that were there, as opposed to everybody just sort of ganging up on him. There were not that many. There may have been four or five reporters. And so when it came to me, I had an exclusive at that. Well, it wasn't exclusive. It was a one-on-one with Bill Clinton. You know, there was nothing earth shattering about my conversation with him, except for the fact that I recalled I had just heard him do four or five interviews. And I knew I wasn't going to ask exactly the same questions that he'd just been asked. But he was there to pay respects to Mokley's family. So what is your latitude if you're going to talk to him about, you know, you have to ask him basically the same things mm-hmm. with the same themes. Yet... I pretty much asked them what happened, what went on, what were your thoughts, that sort of thing. Uh, what did you say? What was, mm. you know, who did you talk to in the family? And, you know, certainly I had had lots of hints from the other reporters of what it, what I should be asking them. And it was just astounding to me that I sort of felt like there were just two people in the world at that one point, mm. you know, him and me. And that I was talking to like an old friend, as opposed to someone who had been the president of the United States. I, I've heard that from you know? so many people uh, uh, over the years. Yeah, and his answers to my questions were the same, but they were different. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't like this is what I'm going to say to reporters, and this is how I'm going to say it, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to say the same thing to this guy. I just said to these other three or four or five. Yeah, that is a gift. Yeah. Uh, that's, oh, that's, it's just incredible. Yeah. An incredible gift. Well, you have those uh, moments. Uh, a minute ago, we said tough to zero in on one, but you zeroed in on a beautiful one. I want to take you back to um, your early days because this has to be brought up, and that is Boston is known as a, a good, great city, Boston Strong and all that, but it had its moments, particularly in the 70s, and you know where I'm going here, with busing, mm-hmm. integration, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You were a presence, an African-American anchor on a Boston news station covering some really incendiary stories, let's put it that way. Yeah. And I've always wondered, because uh, I don't know you well enough to ask you this uh, prior, but did you personally face any kind of pressure or any kind of attack from any aspect of the public because of your skin color during that time, particularly? 
Was it difficult for you? The easiest question to answer is, was it difficult? No, it wasn't. And, well, not psychiatrists, psychologists, try to be a sociologist because that's what I studied <laughs> yes. when I went back to school. Um, and so I can't really get into the mindset of people, but I always felt that I was treated respectfully. And perhaps I was treated respectfully because of the job that I held as opposed to the person that I am. I like to think it's because of the person that I am. I, but, I, I would venture to uh, say that it's both, but go ahead. There obviously were incidents, you know, people that um, I think probably should have had better judgment, you know, called the station and said some things that were, you know, very unnice. And there was one point when I was working the eye opener and the phone rang and a lot of people would be amazed that I, a television news anchor, even would, answered the phone. Would pick up the phone and yeah. answer the phone, and you know that was <laughs> basically the way that things worked at WCVB back in the day, and I'm sure still today. That you know we were all there as part of a team, and we all did pretty much the same things, which is you know we were there to serve, mm. to serve the public, and the public called you on the phone. I mean, these days probably there's much less use of the phone. People In fact, say, you go to say, a website now, Jim, for many television and radio stations, there's no phone number. No phone number. You can't no. even. You, know, you, you, can send, you can send emails yeah, and send yeah. text messages and, and the like. Um, you know, there are phones and you know, they use them. But so, you know, one morning I pick up the phone and someone says, you know, what time do I have to get up? Then I have to look at this on the phone and, you know, I'm not going to you know, get into specific mm. detail about what this is. But, yeah. you know, and my said, well, goodbye. The old uh, saw is, you know, you can just have them ruin your whole day. Or you can just write it off as somebody who's either ignorant or fearful. Yeah. I mean, I'm not uh, obviously African-American, but I am of Jewish persuasion. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the anti-Semitism would creep in every once yeah. in a while. You develop a bit of a of a shield, especially when you're working for an organization like Channel 5, which has been traditionally one of the real family outfits and, and mm-hmm. continues to be. So that's great. I do want to, before we wrap up, however, get back to the acting, which has become kind of a cool thing. Now, when people say you're working on a movie, they should understand what that means in terms of what you're doing as a as an extra or a stand-in. There's a lot of waiting around, but it's also cool to stand next to any of these actors uh, from movies like The Equalizer or American Hustle or any mm-hmm. of these things. Yeah. Tell, tell me one experience that you remember, if you can, of a film. Well, there, there are various aspects of doing the work as a background actor or an extra. One of the really neat parts is when you're a, quote, stand-in. And that is, you are the person that is used as a placeholder mm-hmm. for a major actor. Um, they set up the lights, they set up the, the camera shots, and you know those things. And they certainly are going to have somebody who's making infinite millions sort of stand around while they make sure that you know they put a tape measure on the nose and you know take it back to the camera to make sure they have the the right focal length, or they set up the lights and make sure the shadows are so. So one day I'm called and said, Jim, are you available for stand-in work tomorrow? I had an audition the next day. I said, stand-in? Sure. Who for? Uh, Morgan Freeman. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be there. So. Wow. I mean, even I was, I, I had said yes before I even knew who I'd be standing in for. And so. 
in walks one of the great icons. This was a movie called Ted Two. Oh yes. And in walks one of the great icons of the entertainment world. And it was so funny because there is a slight resemblance. And so when I show up on set, you know, wearing exactly the same outfit that Morgan Freeman's gonna wear, you know, people are going, Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're about the same height, right? That's important. Uh, yes. Same, that's... same same height, same hair coloring, Build. same skin color, yeah, right. that, that sort yeah. of thing. Um and I was surprised that he's about two inches taller than I am. Mm. When you're doing your thing and you explain what that is, and then it's time to step out and Morgan steps in, yeah. is there a little interplay between you and the actor? Uh, there's a little interplay. Yeah. Um, in the rule book for stand-ins. Etiquette rule book. Right? You don't speak to anyone. You certainly don't speak to the principal actors. Mm. You don't speak to the director. You don't speak to anyone unless they speak to you first. Fortunately, Morgan Freeman came in and we had a conversation. Uh, hi, how are you? What's your name? And you know, that, he strikes me. Well, first of all, he's God, so he can do yeah. anything he wants. Yeah. But he, he strikes me as the kind of guy who would, on most days, would be pleasant. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and there were also times when you know he okay yeah sure we understand that your role is to be a stand-in, but uh, we're shooting a scene where he was supposed to be sitting down, and so he came and he sat in. And at which point, generally, you know, you call second team. When first team shows up, you leave. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I kind of stood in the background. And he sat and he sang for like 20 minutes and it was just phenomenal. You know, it was his way of relaxing. Yeah. Um, and he was in conversation with a couple of other people. You know, the, he was supposed to be in a scene with Mark Wahlberg. Uh, Mark Wahlberg's stand-in was still playing the Mark Wahlberg role. So the stand-in and Morgan were having a great conversation. They were talking about boating. They were talking about flying. They were talking about fishing. I mean, and then, you know, when he wasn't talking, he was singing, and it was just, wow, what a performance I'm able to. All right, I'm going to editorialize here and suggest to the audience that the reason Jim Boyd is able to have a conversation with Bill Clinton Morgan Freeman, and any number of people, both famous and non, is because you are a good guy. <laughs> you have a, no, you have a personality on camera that is real. Final point, uh, you mentioned just being yourself. If you could impart mentorship to those who want to get into the television business or any en- aspect of the entertainment world or presentation, what would that be? I love that idea of being truthful and being real, but what would you... Well, you just said it, just be yourself. Yeah. Um, for the longest time, as a news anchor in, in the early days, I said, oh, there's something about the delivery of Jack Hines that I absolutely love, the late Jack Hines. That mm. is. And so I would, would watch him and study him and go home and try to be him. And at some point, I said, you know, I have to realize that people that are watching me and continually watching me are watching me. Mm. You know, they don't want to see me imitating somebody else. So, you know, my advice, just dig as deeply down into yourself as you possibly can. Find out who you are. Your whole career is going to depend upon being able to sell yourself as yourself. Great advice. And also, we're thrilled to know, as we found out in this podcast, that life continues post-anchorship in a big way. And a fun wave, whether it's going back to school, whether it's acting, whether it's doing these techie things that you're involved with, which you didn't even talk about. Congratulations on, as you say, being absolutely fabulous. 
That's a good. That's a good thing to to be. Uh, I am. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I get up in the morning. I look in the mirror. I see somebody smiling back, and I know it's a good day. Well, it's a good day that you joined us. Thank you, Jim Boyd. A real pleasure and an honor. Jordan, my pleasure. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chart Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.